Our text for today comes from Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51 and then 57 through 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for, the ser- for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope that you had a great week. Uh, We had a wonderful week here at Grace. We had our Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday. Uh, So we are a mere five, not including today, but five or six weeks away from Easter, which uh, is wonderful. Easter is really late this year, so it's going to be very green. Hopefully the tulips will be uh, fully going, and it'll be a beautiful uh, day. So as much as Uh, most everyone knows that Easter is on its way. I just want to be sure to remind you to mark your calendars because sometimes, you know, we forget about things and Easter is coming. So uh, today we're beginning a new series that's going to take us all the way through Easter uh, called On the Road. There are a number of passages in Luke's gospel, beginning in Luke 9, where we read right here, that are often referred to as the travel narrative. Because Luke, in Luke 9.51, says this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And, for the, and from here all the way until Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in Luke's narrative, Luke is talking about how Jesus is on the way. He's on the way. He's on the way. He's on the road. He is headed towards something. And for Luke's audience, they knew what he was headed for, but... Luke uh, tells the story in such a way as to be always pointing us, always directing us towards Jesus and towards where Jesus is going and what he is preparing to, going to prepare to do in Jerusalem. Now, one of the fascinating things about this, uh, these travel narratives that Luke pulls out for us is that Luke, in these travel narratives, is always talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus what aspect uh, uh, and different aspects of what that entails. You see, to be on the way with Jesus, to be on the road with Jesus, is to be, in some sense, his disciple, to be walking along with him. Jesus had a number of disciples who were walking along with him on the road. He had some who would leave him. He would ha- had some who were attracted to him as he went about his ministry on his way to Jerusalem. Ultimately, when he goes to the cross in Jerusalem, they will almost all leave him. But Jesus, along the way, and as he has set his face towards Jerusalem, very often gives his disciples teachings about what it means to be his disciple or what is entailed in that process. And in today's passage of Scripture, we have what is a very sobering word from Jesus about what it looks like to be his disciple. You see, not everything in the Scriptures that Jesus has to say to us about being his disciple is easy. Some of it is a little sobering. Some of it might even be a little off-putting. 
And today's words from Jesus are a bit sobering. They might cause us to take a step back and go, well, what is Jesus talking about here? When he, for, for one disciple, he's basically, one would-be disciple, he's basically saying, do you know what you're getting into? And for these other disciples who, would, who he encourages to follow him, he uh, has some very stark words for them. So what is Jesus getting at here? Imagine with me for a moment that you are this first Jewish man in, in verse 37 of chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, that you see Jesus walking along the road. You're probably a relatively poor but religious person, somebody who's zealous for God, and you've been hearing about this man who may be the Messiah, the anointed, David's son, the one who would deliver Israel from all of its bondage the one that would make you and your people free. And as you observe him, your heart is stirred. You're moved by what Jesus has been doing. Maybe you've observed some of his miracles, or it's possible you just saw him and you knew this was the one. And so you come up to Jesus and you proclaim, you don't ask to be his follower, you proclaim, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus responds, functionally, I'm not sure that you want that. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. I don't even have a home or a bed. You see, this man wanted to get in on the ground floor of the revolution, right? He wanted to be part of what God was doing. The only problem with that is found in verse 51, that where Jesus was headed, the, this Jerusalem to which he had resolutely uh, chosen to, to travel to was not to uh, a victorious end, but rather to the cross. And Luke is constantly telling us throughout this passage that the things that the disciples that come to Jesus for are not necessarily the things that they think. You see, uh, Jesus points out to us and to his disciples in the story that moving forward, things are going to get difficult. They're going to get hard. They're going to run into opposition. And the disciples who are following him may not know it yet, right? But their lives are going to get turned upside down. And many of them will at least momentarily doubt. Some of them will lose their faith entirely. They will fearfully run for their lives, and they will grieve the death of their rabbi and Lord. You see, when Luke tells us that Jesus has resolutely set out for Jerusalem, he is telling us that the road of following Jesus is going to be hard. It's not always going to be easy. And so when the man proclaims that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes, Jesus' response effectively is, you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what that entails. And the rest of this section of Scripture are more examples of the ways in which following Jesus is difficult. Now, this is uh, not what we are used to hearing from Jesus, isn't, is it? Or at least in culture, it's not what we are used to thinking about when we think about following Jesus. When we hear this, um, we, when, we, when we think about following Jesus, what we often think about is in at least in popular Christian culture, is the incredible plan that God has for your life, right? This is what we most often hear about. 
God has an incredible plan for your life, right? And so you need to follow him so that you can walk out that plan. The message of Jesus in this passage seems to kind of run counter to that, that God has a plan for your life, but it's not going to always be great, right? Which is startling. And when we hear that phrase, right, God has an incredible plan for your life, what we often think of is that that means physical and material blessing, correct? So I'm sure we are all in, all in this room, Most many of us. Are you familiar with the God-shaped hole analogy, right? The, the analogy goes something like this. You have a God-shaped hole in your heart, and the only thing that can fill it is Jesus. So when you give your life to Jesus, he comes in and he fills that hole, and then you are complete. You're perfect. You have no more needs. Everything is filled up. You are now whole, and life from this point forward is just only going to be good, right? Now, there's some truth to that, right? It's not all untrue. It was Augustine who once said the famous line that our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, right? So there's some truth to that. But the problem with the God-shaped whole analogy is that when we hear it, we hear it through the lens of modern American consumerism. See, modern American consumerism is this mindset that says there is no problem too big that money cannot fix, right? There is no problem too big that is not infinitely controllable through the use of capital that I can kind of throw at it, right? And this is really what we think. If I just had enough money, then I could solve all the world's problems, right? If I could just throw enough money at it, if I could just throw enough resource at it, if I could just have the right products, then all of my problems would be solved. We think this inherently as Americans, and we have kind of foisted this kind of modern consumerism on the gospel in a way that distorts it in our minds. You see, there are some instances, some circumstances, some difficulties, some tragedies, that cannot be avoided or controlled. You cannot throw capital at some situations and make them better. There are some problems in your life that the magic bullet will not fix. And by that I literally mean the magic bullet that you make smoothies with. It's delicious and really works well for smoothies, but won't solve every problem in your life. You see, we will run into trouble in this life. Things will be difficult. And you and I need to know that following Jesus does not mean that those difficulties will not occur. Jesus needs us to know that following him does not mean that those difficulties will not occur. And so in this passage, he makes it very clear that they will. They will. Life will rock your boat. I was reading this week uh, an article from a sports writer, a guy named Jonathan Charks. Um, he just writes about basketball, mostly. He doesn't really often say, write anything profound. And, but Charks has an aggressive form of cancer that will likely be terminal. But he also has a two-year-old son. And in the article, he reflects on his own life, on his faith, and, uh, and more, mostly on his son. It's a beautiful and kind of heartbreaking piece. If you want to read it, it's called Does My Son Know You? It's on the ringer.com. But what stood out to me from this piece from Charks is that 
as he reflects both on the, his relationship with his son and his own life and also his faith in Jesus and this community that he's involved himself in, this church where he goes to small group. What was, what was fascinating to me was the fact that he's so very honest. He's so very honest about what he's experiencing. He speaks openly about his wrestling with God. He speaks openly about his desire for God to heal him of this terrible disease and how it hurts him that that has not happened yet. But what the real point of the piece is, is that is all about what will happen to his son if this cancer ends up taking his life. As a father, it's like the greatest fear I can think of. And how he is investing his life deeply in his church community, in part because he wants his son to have a supportive family of people around him if his dad isn't there. And that'll break your heart. This is what he says. I don't want Jackson to have the same childhood that I did. Just for the background, Charks' father died of MS, I believe, when he was quite young. I want him to wonder why his dad's friends always come over and shoot hoops with him. Why they always invite him to their houses. Why there are so many of them at his games. I hope that he gets sick of them. One thing I have learned from this experience is that you can't worry about the things you can't control. I can't control what will happen to me. I don't know how long I will be there for my son. All I can do is make the most of the time that I have left. That means investing in other people so that they can be there for him. Life will rock your boat, won't it? And one of the reasons I follow Jesus, one of the reasons that I believe so deeply that, this, that the, what the scriptures say about him is true, is just this. It's because he doesn't shy away from this fact. Jesus never shies away from the difficulty of life. You see, historically speaking, Christians have never believed that the gospel is this special mechanism that helps us to escape life. In fact, early Christians believed the opposite of that. They believed that following Jesus would cause them more pain in some ways than following a different way. Just look at the first disciples, Peter, James, John, the Apostle Paul. All of them experienced incredible trials and difficulties. Most of them were martyred. All because of their discipleship to Jesus, not in spite of it. And they knew firsthand what Jesus was saying in Luke 9, didn't they? So the question is, where do we go from here? Nick, you have such a, you have such a sunny outlook on life. This is making me feel so good. Here's the truth. Jesus does not deny the reality that following him will be difficult. And that life as a follower of Jesus, at times will be extremely hard, sometimes for many of us even tragic. So what's the point, right? If, if following Jesus doesn't get me out of this situation, then what's the point? What do I get back from him in doing this? Why choose the way of Jesus over all of the other ways that I could be living? If life is so full of struggle and difficulty, what advantage is there for me in following this way? And being a disciple of Jesus. I want to say two things to that this morning. First, 
I think it's really important to note. We are not the first people to ever ask this question, right? We are just not. We are not the only people who have ever suffered. That's helpful for me when I'm in a moment of suffering. Suffering has this way of making us feel like we're the only people who have ever suffered, right? But that is not the case. Faithful followers of Jesus for millennia have found within their faith a deep reservoir of hope and strength amid the difficulties of life. This isn't new or novel. I myself have found in my pain and difficulty that when I have allowed those situations to have an effect on me, have been a catalyst to a deeper walk with Jesus and a more secure and probably a more mature faith even. And so when you question and when you wrestle and when you are in the middle of difficulties and pains, just know there is a great, a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before you. You have who have followed Jesus faithfully through the storms of their lives and have come out the other side of those storms saying, it is well with my soul. And that is a comfort and a confidence that we should all carry. It should be a great encouragement to us. So that's the first thing I want to say this morning. But the second thing I want to say this morning is that I don't want to try and give you reasons for why life can be difficult, or why following Jesus can be difficult, or why, this, or why the pain in your life occurs, or why following Jesus can be costly. I'm not God. I don't have answers to those questions. And very often, in the midst of those situations, neither will you. But I can tell you what I know to be true and what the scriptures tell us about what happens to us when we let God in, into our lives and into those situations. In the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, we read this. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us, given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So you're saying, what does that have to do with what you're saying, Nick? Here's the truth. When we follow Jesus, we live on the boundary or the frontier of the world's brokenness and God's saving love. I'll say it one more time. When we follow Jesus, we live on the boundary or the frontier of the world's brokenness and God's saving love. We follow Jesus in faith because we are his disciples 
and we are indwelt by God's spirit, his living presence. And here's where we get the God-shaped hole analogy from. But notice that the result of that infilling by God is not a more prosperous life necessarily. The ability that we are filled with is to meet the world's brokenness with the love of God. Maybe this is why Jesus must be so realistic about the difficulties of life. Because in order to be the one who brings life, he was going to need to stand in closer proximity to the darkness than anyone else. And who has a better view, a clearer eye towards how hard and painful life can be than the one who has to actually become brokenness and sin in order to set us free? Only rather than being overcome by the pain of the world, through Christ, we are able to be, the scriptures tell us, more than conquerors. This is why those within whom God's love dwells usually run towards the pain of the world and not away from it. I don't think it's any coincidence that the primary aid organization in all the world is the Red Cross, right? The love of God in Christ actually empowers us to stand on the frontier of God's saving love in the world's brokenness. Shining God's light, pointing to his beautiful love, bringing blessing out of the ashes of broken situations. This is what God's spirit does when it dwells within our hearts. Now, rewind with me all the way back to the beginning of the message. I'm going to ask you to uh, mentally kind of jump back with me. Where Luke tells us that Jesus resolutely sets himself towards Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He's going, literally, to meet the world in its most broken and sinful place. And the place that he does that is on the cross. Jesus meets the world's brokenness with love. This is what he does. By lying, laying down his life, living on the borderland of the brokenness of God, of the brokenness of the world and God's love, in order that we might be filled up with that love in the midst of our own brokenness. And what is the result of that work that Jesus does there in Jerusalem? Through death, he conquers death. And in Christ's resurrection, we have the sure and lasting hope that brokenness and pain cannot, will not, ever have the last word. Amen? And so, we can walk with Jesus as his disciples in this borderland between the world's brokenness and God's unfailing love, drawing from the grace of God the strength to meet life's challenges with a power that is not of this world. So here's my last word to us this morning. If you are in a place today in the midst of one of those borderland experiences, between the brokenness of the world, maybe between the brokenness of your own heart and the goodness and grace of God, just know that you're in a good place. Not because the things that are happening to, happening to you are good. They're not. They're the things that Jesus died to defeat. 
but because we know from the scriptures that that is the exact place, the very place where Jesus is found. He is always found on the border of your brokenness and his love and never any other place. And when we know that, let it sink deep into our, into our hearts and into our minds. We come out of it on the other side knowing full well that the thing that propels us, the thing that carries us out into the world, the things that, the things that uh, moves us is the very love of God. And we are able to miraculously in that place to be agents of that love to others which is exactly what John says in 1 John. Jesus will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. You might not always feel it, but he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. Would you stand with me this morning? If you are on the borderland right now, would you do this with me? Would you just put your hands like this. I'm going to pray with you. Father, I want to pray for my friends that on their journey with Jesus, they're going to encounter, maybe they are encountering some type of difficulty, some pain, some opposition, God. Have promised to meet us in that place with your love. And so this morning, God, I pray that you would minister to my friends, that you would indwell them with your Holy Spirit, and that the indwelling of your Holy Spirit would birth a great and abounding love that would carry them, not just in the midst of whatever situation they're experiencing now, but in and through that thing out into the world to be emissaries and messengers of that love to others. Jesus, without you, the pain and brokenness of the world makes no sense. But with you, working to, to bring good out of all of our broken places, we can have hope and we can have faith left foot in front of the right foot, knowing that as we walk, we are walking in your grace. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord by singing this song together. If you're in this place and you're feeling just wrung out, maybe you're in the borderland, would you just respond through song this morning and let the Lord minister to your heart?
As you go today, just go knowing that Jesus is with you. Wherever you go, however you're feeling, he's with you. Amen? Amen. Would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. We'll see you.